Hi there. You're listening to One of Eight Billion, a podcast about all of us. I'm your host, Ivan Stegic. This podcast is supported by 107, a technology studio whose mission is to make things that matter. Online at 107.com. We all have a story, don't we? We've all had successes and failures, joy and disappointment, love and sadness. And yet, we've all made it to here, to right now. Our stories are one amongst eight billion others, eight billion other stories, each of them unique, each of them grand in their own way, and each of them a window into the humanity that connects us all. One of Eight Billion tells life stories from around the world. Let's listen. Our story today is about Ashley Crone, school librarian for Edina Public Schools, who is committed to inspiring young people to explore ideas and the world around them. Let's listen. Welcome to One of Eight Billion. If you wouldn't mind, please introduce yourself, tell me what your name is, and tell me what you're doing in life right now. My name is Ashley Crown. My pronouns are she, her. And what I'm doing in life right now is actually a huge moment of transition, at least in my work life. I previously had worked for Minneapolis Public Schools for 14 years. The last eight years spent heading up Minneapolis's 67 school libraries and through a frustrating series of events that is no longer happening. And I'm now going to be a school librarian for Edina Public Schools. So I'm switching from my roots of urban education to suburban education. In terms of personal life, my husband and I eloped six months ago, and now I've been procrastinating on planning a wedding reception that's supposed to happen two months from yesterday. Congratulations. Those are <laughs> monumental changes. So wedding reception and a major work event as well. Yeah. And somewhere in there, I'm also trying to finish my second master's degree, which like, I don't recommend going for a second one. Just get one and be done. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about what precipitated the change from Minneapolis to Edina? It sounds like you were there for a long time and it sounds like there's a story there. Yeah, there uh, there definitely is. So I started working in education in 2008. I had been traveling, volunteering abroad, doing what I kind of cringe and be like in my like white savior type of mode. But I realized that I always enjoyed going to school and I really enjoyed putting things in front of kids or learners and them deciding what they wanted to learn. Like I wasn't the one who made them learn. They made the decision to learn whatever was put in front of them. So that's how I started. And I started out assisting in a school library. And at the time I was in school because I was like, oh, I'm going to become an English teacher because I like books and I like technology. And I don't know why somebody didn't say, hey, you should really be a librarian. I became a school librarian and then through someone leaving and 
not a lot of people wanting to helm up an entire district's libraries. I was like, yeah, I'll do that. You know, I don't have a ton of experience, but I have a lot of passion. So that's what I did for the last eight years. And for anybody who's been paying attention to local Minneapolis or metro area Minnesota events, I actually took part of our teacher strike. So I was on strike with all of my colleagues for three weeks in March, and we were truly, really trying to get better learning conditions for students and better professional conditions for all educators, not just licensed staff, but paraprofessionals, which I started out as, and specifically for our colleagues of color, because more paraprofessionals or educational assistants tend to be people of color. Minnesota has one of the highest rate of white teachers. It's 95% of licensed educators in the state of Minnesota are white folks. So we were really trying to fight for our colleagues and we had a lot of wins, but public education is very hard, but it is also very rewarding. And for me personally, through the last couple of years with the pandemic, there's always a part of you that's a socialist if you think about like shared resources for a library, but that has definitely exploded a lot more for me in the pandemic. And I am now what I refer to myself as like a baby anti-capitalist. There's always a certain level of exploitation of any person who works in an educational system. We've been defunding education for decades in the United States and you get manipulated because it's, oh, but it's for the kids. What I've said to library staff is, I want you to work your hours and I want you to work hard, but you need to take your breaks. You need to take your lunches. And you also need to demonstrate to students, like, I get to have a break. I get to be a full, whole human being because that's what Mm -hmm. we want for them. And I also don't want them to become exploited or manipulated. I think these last few months and then definitely these last few years, it's just really shown that it was a really hard and toxic work environment. And my job had actually been reclassified. I reapplied for it. And as I was waiting to hear back, because it took them three months to interview me and two weeks after my interview to contact me, I was like, well, I'm not going to wait around anymore. I've heard great things about Edina. Every single school has a librarian, whereas in Minneapolis, it's less than half. And they were so excited. I had a friend from Edina say, I really think you should apply. We would really love to have you and to interview and even in the interview to get such good responses. And I got a call less than 48 hours. I interviewed on a Friday afternoon. I got a phone call on a Sunday afternoon offering me the job. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to go somewhere where I'm wanted and people are excited versus... appreciated." Yeah, having that persistent feeling of whatever I'm doing is not enough, but I'm not getting enough coaching on how to learn how to do better. So it was hard to leave. Like I've been with them for 14 years. It's the only school district I've worked for, which I feel like as a millennial, that's like maybe a little, I feel like a lot of my people in my generation have changed jobs every few years. And I hear that's a great way to make more money. But yeah, so it's really, it's a big change and I'm excited and I'm a little nervous, but I keep being met with excitement and support from my new coworkers. And my husband is super psyched because he's looking forward to me maybe not working 10 hour days sometimes. 12 to 14, depending on the time of year. I'm like, what is this? I can have a real life. What is this? So Yeah. When's your first day? My first day is a week from tomorrow. So in eight days, I will, mid-August, I will start this new position with a little less responsibility. I'll go from being in charge of 67 libraries to one. 
And do you get to go into the library and see actual people in your job or does it start out virtually? What does that onboarding look like? So most school districts do like new teacher orientation or new teacher workshop. And with COVID, it's, it depends on the district and the number of people. But for Edina, we'll be going in face-to-face and we'll get to just do a lot of onboarding. I think the first day is around a lot of like our technology and the tools that are available to us. I'm told that all of the school librarians during lunch or the media specialists, we get called a lot of different names, hopefully good ones, but they introduce themselves because a lot of schools don't don't have a school librarian and some people have never had one in their career they're like so wait what do y'all do and I think sometimes people have old school notions of a librarian because if you had positive or negative experiences as a kid I mean I'm in my late 30s and we started doing some technology but the library was still mostly focused on like books but now it's about information in all of its forms and inquiry and exploration and that includes books but it's so much more Minnesota is one of 19 states that doesn't require a school librarian, and yet we're in a literacy crisis. If you've been paying attention to the news, I don't think it's the only reason why we're having a literacy crisis in the state of Minnesota, but in this instance, correlation and causation, they go hand in hand. I grew up in South Africa, and they taught us about the Dewey Decimal System, Way back in the 80s. Yeah, we used that. And I was going to say, that was a wonderful foundation for me. And I loved going to the library and looking for books. And for some reason, I remember 808.9 as sections that some responsibility of finding some literature in. Do they teach the Dewey Decimal System these days? Is there like a beginner introduction to how to use fine information for children? Or is it go to the library, figure it out? If you are a librarian who really cares about kids accessing or anyone accessing information, one of those deeply held librarian or library values, because there's so many people who work in a library, not just the title librarian, it really is about equitable access and arranging your materials in a way that whoever your patrons or your audiences can access things. There are a lot of problems with the Dewey Decimal System. It was created in the 1800s. Dewey was a man with a lot of biases, like we all have, but even more, and it was, it's very Christian-focused. And so while we do teach kids about that, it's not that it's this is a great system. It's just this is a system we use. Yeah, and we really want to teach kids more about how information is organized so they can apply that anywhere else. Because the public library in Hennepin County uses something called Library of Congress, which to me is even more confusing. And then a bookstore organizes it differently. And there's actually been a rise in school libraries to reorganize their materials by genre because it really makes more sense for kids. If you're going to go into like the fiction section and people just organize it by the author's last name, you have to know who the author is. But if you're like, oh, we're going to put all of our humor books together and all of our adventure and you're or you're a kid who really love fantasy, you're like, oh, let me come over to this whole section. And then instead of you trying to look something up in the catalog and find that one book and it's not near anything else, you get to actually explore it. And there are even people who are they're ditching Dewey is what it's called and trying to think of new ways to organize materials that make sense so that like materials are together and easy to find Mm. because 
I would rather a student or an adult or anyone who's seeking out information spend more time looking through the actual books and figuring out, is this a book or a material, whatever it may be, that I want to read or listen to, then how do I even find this thing? Imagine if you went into the grocery store and they're like, we're just going to organize everything alphabetically by brand, but not like (laughs) materials aren't together. Or like maybe the refrigerated stuff is all together and the non-perishables, but it's all just mixed up. It's now we got to pair things like things together to make it easier for folks. And then it's the job of library staff to, especially for kids, to encourage them to explore new things. Oh, you like this? Have you tried this? Have you tried that? And it's that slow opening. Because sometimes kids are, I really like what I like. And then you get kids who are like, I don't know, I'm into this or I'm into that. And I love something that makes me feel alive. And what makes me want to do what I want to do is I love, especially for younger kids, their enthusiasm and their curiosity in the world. I want to continue to nurture that. Students come with to us with so many interests and so much history already. They've already experienced, even as five-year-olds, they've experienced so much. So how do we build on what they already have and help expand what's going on in their local and global community? Because it really is such a global world. I love this idea of exposing kids and adults to different ideas and diverse opinions and things that you might not be interested in now, but that you could be interested in because someone else mentioned it to you. And it feels like that's the complete opposite of what we have online as a rule of thumb. Everywhere you go online, everything's about personalization, Mm -hmm. isn't it? Put your preferences in here and we'll show you stuff that's like what you like. And it's very different than what you just described, which is, oh, you like this and you might like this, but have you tried this? And it's totally different than what you were expecting. It almost feels like the online world is creating more of an echo chamber than I originally thought because of this preference personalization stuff. Yeah, it's one of those things that really frustrated me. I have a distinct memory of, I don't know how many years ago, I think it was like Google or something or hearing about how the algorithm was changing so that they were going to start feeding you more things similar to your history. And I remember being like, but what if I don't want that? What if I do want to come across things that I'm exposed to differently? And I think it has absolutely contributed to the polarization that the United States is facing right now. Mm. And it's, I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to teach that to younger kids. It's a little bit easier for like middle school and high school kids to teach them about. So the algorithm is going to be pushing you similar things and talking to kids. I like to frame it as do you like being told what to do? Because developmentally, when you get to that sort of teen years, you're really, you're pushing back even more on boundaries and you're really trying to become your own independent person. And so I just flip that and I say, I want to help you become more independent, but let me tell you about how your search engines or social media or whatever else, like YouTube and everything else is really trying to push you their agenda. And it really is rooted in capitalism and what they're trying to sell to you. So here are some skills I can teach you. Let me pull back the veil a little bit and teach you more about how you can reclaim what you want to look at or how you can perform searches in order to find more information. 
And then also talking to kids a little bit about their digital footprint and how it is so much harder now than it was 10, 15 years ago to not be sharing all of your data constantly. Mm -hmm. And so how can you start to reclaim that Mm -hmm. a little bit? Although I have my own strong opinions about things, it is my job as an educator to be able to share with kids so they can make the world what they want it to be. So they get to choose the type of world that they want to live in. But to really apply that critical eye, when I think about the rise of social media, I did my undergrad in Boston. And so that was when like Facebook was just starting and we were the first of 25 schools to be invited. So I've been, oh my God, what is it, 16, 17, 18 years? So long. And just thinking about how all of that has changed over time, but really deciding what do you want out there? And it's interesting too, for parents, do you realize what you're doing when you're sharing photos and the information you're sharing about your kid? And I've seen so many friends and people on the internet who used to share a lot more, but as their kids got older and could start saying, no, I don't want that and how the role of consent plays into all of that. And so I just, I find this stuff kind of fascinating. And I think, unfortunately, there's a certain level of control we won't be able to have based on like how much we're participating, but there are ways that you can take back that control. And it's also a way to get like civically involved because I think a lot of our legislators are pretty old and don't understand this. So we have to say, hey, you should be protecting us or this isn't okay. Or maybe it's time for you to retire and bring some new blood in. (laughs) Yeah, maybe an opinion that is actually valid and knows about the circumstances of our daily technology use and all of the effects that they have in how they're used. I'm so glad to be to you about this because when I think of a librarian, I think of that person I used to visit at the library when I needed a book. And you're describing to me and opening my eyes to a role in society that is much bigger and much larger and much more important than what I usually think and the connotations that I have around a librarian. So thank you for that, <laughs> that for me. Yeah, that's what I'm here for. So let's talk about where life started for you. So you've been in Minneapolis for at least the last 14 years working at Minneapolis Public Schools. You did mention Boston for undergrad. Where were you born? Where did you grow up? I was actually born and raised at least till the age of six in Minneapolis. So grew up in the city in a young age. And then my parents decided that they wanted to move us out to the southwestern suburbs of Minnesota. And while it was nice to have more space for a long time, I missed like being an actual city kid. So I ended up graduating from Eden Prairie High School. And the best advice I ever received from my godmother's daughter was to go as far away as you could stand for college. So for me, I only thought as wide as the United States, at least at the beginning. So I was like, you know what, I'm going to go to Boston because as a kid, like those first few years growing up in a city, I was privileged enough that both my parents owned their own businesses. And so we traveled a lot when I was a kid. We did really long road trips. So I have incredible bladder control. Let's go on a road trip. I can go for a while. I don't like to stop the car until we get to half a tank of gas. And I was, I'm the youngest of three, technically five, because my dad has two kids from his first marriage. I have two older brothers and then a half sister and a half brother. Grew up in in that kind of a family, very encouraged to read and seek out information. 
I played sports when I was a kid. I always say I was good enough to know I wasn't good enough to be great. And I maybe took that a little bit too hard, too much to heart for being like, oh, I'm just not good enough. That seems to be the thing that's the like cloud or the specter in the back of my head. I ended up studying film at Boston University, and I loved being in a bigger city compared to New York City. Mm. It's a lot smaller, but it's much bigger and much more dense than Minneapolis. And I thought, yeah, I'm going to do that, and I'm not going to come back to Minneapolis. After I graduated, it was like, do I want to go to New York or LA? And I'd spent a semester in London, and I'd spent a summer living in Germany with an ex-boyfriend, and... I was like, yeah, I'm just going to leave Minnesota and I'm never going to come back. I chose LA because it's the center of the film and television industry. And it was not for me. Let me tell you, I loved it, but I don't Mm. have that passion. And people kept saying, you just got to give LA two years and then you'll love it. If I don't love a place after a few months, like two (laughs) years is just, I've been brainwashed into thinking I love it. So I sold my car and a lot of my stuff and I moved back home. I was lucky or privileged enough to be able to live at home with my parents. And then I spent 10 months using their house as a base and just going to travel. And at one point I just spent like six months traveling and I traveled through the Middle East. I spent three months volunteering in Tanzania, the aforementioned white savior thing I'm still trying to get over. And then I actually went, I had gone to (laughs) South Africa for six weeks, gorgeous country. And then I went back for a month and my parents actually came with me. Honestly, my dad's not a big traveler. Like he'll do the US, but international travel, he's all go to Europe. But so that was a big deal for him to come to South Africa. And then I came back and I realized I want to teach. And I thought, I'll just get my master's in Minnesota and I'll get my teaching license and I'll just move somewhere else. And wouldn't you know, I actually fell in love with it as an adult. So yeah, when I came back those 14 years, that's where I've been. I've been living in Minneapolis and my husband and I bought a house in North Minneapolis a year and a half ago and love being a homeowner. I found out that I like having really crisp sidewalk edges with the grass. I don't know. You just hit your late 30s and there are weird things that are satisfying to you. I know how you feel. Have you ever tried using real edgers? Not like the ones with the little plastic piece of nylon that comes out, but one that has the hardcore metal edge. It's an edger. Like do it once a year. Oh, yeah, man. we just bought one because I was saying to my husband, I was like, I don't want one of those push things. I've been in a weird number of car accidents for someone as young as I am, and I want an electric one. It's a plug-in one so the batteries don't die, and that was my weekend activity. And honestly, for a job where my last, <laughs> the last position I was in for eight years, it was a lot of a desk job and a lot of just like digital work, and you don't actually get to see the things mm. you're fighting for impact students like face. To be able to like do work and then see it and just ripping grass out of the ground. It's just, it's something like primal and immediate and it is so satisfying. Mm -hmm. I did not know I would love yard work as much as I do. I was like, I'll do the inside of the house and you do the outside. And that's how we're going to tag team it. That's also great. Did you ever think you were going to be a librarian when you were young? You described the story of how you ended up with a master's degree and how you ended up being an educator, but did being a librarian, did being an educator ever cross your mind when you were much younger? I don't ever remember saying I want to be a teacher or I want to be a librarian. I enjoyed school and I think I was good at it. I was good at fulfilling what the typical expectations are. 
I knew that I always wanted to help people. I get a lot of meaning and satisfaction from helping others. And that I think that also stems from a place of, I think we all have like certain traumatic events in our life and joyous events, just things that the movie Inside Out would call core memories. I think it stems from a time when I wasn't able to help myself. And so I was like, well, I'm going to try to help others. So for a long time, I thought I wanted to be a psychologist. And I highly recommend therapy to everyone. And I wish it was more accessible. And I wish that our country actually cared about healthcare. But that's what I thought I was going to do. I think it was one of those things like maybe in the back of my mind, but it wasn't until I was volunteering abroad and basically working in like a school situation that I realized how much I actually like kids. They're really fascinating and curious and unfiltered. They say things that are so surprising. And even though I don't have my own kids and I actually don't want to have my own, I get to do that through work. And then I just get to come home and just Mm. rest and be in control of everything. It was really interesting. What I do appreciate now is I think when I was growing up, we so much we asked kids, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I've really suggested by other people, I've really shifted to what kind of problems do you want to solve or what role do you want to play in your community? Especially since so many jobs, there are jobs now that are really popular that didn't exist five years ago. So I think that's been an interesting shift Mm -hmm. to ask kids because I think that helps them realize there are many different career pathways that they could take based on these interests that they have. I like the way of framing that as what role do you want to have and how do you want to contribute to society and to your community as opposed to what job do you want? What title do you want that defines you? Because it just feels a whole lot more healthier to talk about like what we want to solve. So thank you for that. You are shifting the way I think about stuff. I love That's it. Good. It's because other people shifted it for me. It's moving from that like individualistic culture that I think is so dominant in the U.S. to more of that community-minded. Because honestly, for me, if the pandemic has shown us anything, it's really that we are all interconnected and we do depend on each other. So how can we help care for one another and care for ourselves? And how can we have the greatest effect on our community as well? If you think about the title of our podcast, it's one of eight billion. Eight billion is a huge number. It makes me feel really small In some cases, when I think of the relationship between myself and other humans, and it also makes me feel disconnected, but it also makes me feel connected because I know that these other 8 billion humans out there are very much like me and are experiencing problems and situations and love and joy and sorrow just the way that I do. How does being one of 8 billion make you feel? I would say I have similar feelings, both the connection and disconnection. I have a distinct memory as a kid. I can't remember how old I was. It was before I was 10, but realizing that every other person I saw had as rich of a life as I did, right? They had family and they have friends and they have dreams and fears and aspirations. And so that helped me to feel more connected with others, even folks who I wouldn't meet. 
but it can feel like, oh, I'm just one of many. And I think sometimes I can vacillate between the two. But when I try to think about being one of 8 billion, I guess I tend to think a little bit more in metaphor, like thinking about, well, if we're each a grain of sand, individually, it's very small. But when we come together, we make a beach. Or if you think about we're each rain droplets, but then we all come together and make an ocean. And there are ways that impact each other. And everyone's going to have a different kind of impact on their local community, or some people are going to have impacts on their country or globally and deciding what you want to do. And I feel like I had a mid-20s crisis and I've had the later 30s crisis of, oh, who do I want to be? What do I want to do? How do I fit in the world? Hitting this point where I've aged out of that 18 to 35 demographic that just seems like so many things are targeted to and sometimes thinking, yeah, arbitrary, absolutely (laughs) arbitrary. And why is the U.S. so youth obsessed? But sometimes I think, oh, I had so many fewer responsibilities. And does that mean I have less opportunity or possibility? And that's something that really makes me feel alive, like the idea of possibility. I joke, I don't drink or take any substances like that anymore. But I always say the thing that always gets me the most high is possibility. Anything could happen. Oh my gosh. And then that's also balanced with having an anxiety (laughs) disorder and being like, oh my God, anything can happen. Right. And trying to, as much as I can, acknowledge it, try not to judge it, but also say, yeah, there's so much. And when I think of this time of transition and remaking, it's actually just in therapy this morning talking about like, how do I feel about this transition? And what do I want in this new job or in any new situation? And we can always start anew in any moment. But I think larger moments of transition allow us times to think about who do we want to be and how do I want to impact myself and the people around me? And this is I'm moving to like a different pond, if you will. And so how am I as my one droplet going to interact with this community and make positive change and I'm going to make mistakes? And how do I know how to apologize and change my actions in order to continue to make a positive impact on those around me while also really trying not to overwork myself and not get burned out because they're one of 8 billion, but there's only one of me. And this, as far as I know, this is the only Mm. life Mm -hmm. I get. And so how am I going to live a life that feels meaningful to me while also ensuring that my life is not only having a positive impact, but isn't like negatively impacting others in a significant way? I love the metaphor that you talked about of one grain of sand amongst others making a beach and one droplet amongst others making an ocean. It really materializes that idea in your brain. Or at least it reminds me that those grains of sand and those droplets in the ocean really only can affect the local community of droplets and the local community of grains of sand around them. And we have to work together to make a bigger impact even around communities. So I appreciate that visualization. When you mentioned struggles or crises that you had in your 30s, what has been your greatest struggle in life? Oh, that is a great question. And I would say initially it's a hard one, but since being back in therapy, I've been talking about that. I think my greatest struggle, or at least something that jumps out right now, and this is from a very privileged point of view, like I am a white upper middle class woman who grew up in a family who had more than enough. So there are many things that haven't been a struggle for me. 
I think some of my biggest struggles have come from my own mental health struggles or just believing that I'm not good enough. I don't know how it is for you or for anyone who's listening, but if you haven't ever had depression or anxiety, which I have had since a very young age, it's essentially a couple of voices just like talking to you and telling you that you're not good enough and everybody thinks you're the worst. And then just trying to fight that because there's so often that you think it's coming from me, so it must be true. To me, these illnesses are something that I will probably live with my whole life. I take medication for them. I have stopped imbibing certain substances and I don't even drink caffeine anymore. And just like seeing how things positively and negatively impact my health. But there is always that fight and you're really, they're liars. Honestly, it's what it is. It preys on like your biggest fears mm. and your insecurities, and it tries to make you believe that is all that you are. Whereas I, for a very long time, I just thought I was only those things, and I was trying to present a mask to the rest of the world because I also have a, I think like many people, a desperate need for love and belonging. And I think we all should be able to be loved and belong. Mm. But there's this other voice saying, but no one will like you if you really show them who you are. And why? I think of all these stupid things you did or stupid things you said and you ruminate when you are unmedicated and have not had therapy and things like that. And so that's probably my biggest and most ongoing struggle is just that internal thing. And I've been privileged enough to do a lot of therapy and to be able to get to a place where it's like, nope, you're just lying to me and I'm not going to listen to that liar in my head or just like hearing it and not judging it or absorbing it and just saying, okay, yep, that's what you're going to say. Or just having some times when you're like, I'm just really sad. And some of you want to be like, why? And I'm like, there isn't really a reason. Or I guess if you want to go scientific, it's this chemical in my body is out of balance and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. But what I do appreciate is for a really long time, I was focusing more on covering that up and trying to appear like I was fitting in. And I was spending more energy appearing like I was, quote, normal than actually dealing with the like causes or the ways that would actually make me healthier. It was probably about 10 years ago. I started really being like, you know what? I'm so tired of doing that and I'm expending way too much energy. So I'm going to focus more of my energy on how to get healthier and how to live with this and how to reduce a lot of my symptoms or the things that exacerbate it. And I'm going to be a little bit more honest. I was able to be vulnerable with people that I trusted and then that kind of expanded and expanded. Mm. And now I try to talk a little bit more openly just beyond like friends or sometimes you're talking about it to the void of the internet, like on Twitter or whatever else where you're like, I don't know, I have however many mm-hmm. followers, but like, I don't know, somebody's just got to shout into the void and at least trying to be open about that. I've had a positive response from people who aren't just close friends and they're like, oh, thank you for sharing that. Or uh, sometimes it feels like you're the only one. I was like, yeah, because it really wants like your illnesses, your mental health issues want to isolate you. And again, that's why community is so important. It's just It just comes back to community and connection for me. It does. It does. Thank you so much for sharing that and for answering so honestly and for being vulnerable. It's a question I ask, and I am grateful that you were able to answer it. And I wanted to flip the script a little bit and ask you, 
what is bringing you joy these days? And is there anything that you're reading that brings you joy? Thank you for asking that. And I also love asking that question. I recently attended my 20 year high school reunion and folks were asking, how are you or whatever? And I would just say, what's bringing you joy? So I love that you're asking me that. What is bringing me joy? We have a 10 year old ginger colored, a little redheaded Pomeranian who's my baby. And so I... (laughs) Love him along with our 16 year old cat. I just love seeing their wow. excitement. The cat is newer to us, but we adopted him a year and a half ago, and he's still pretty spry, he loves to chase flies and stuff. I definitely have like somewhat of an addiction to the internet or social media, and I'm trying to work on that. So I'm trying to reconnect and just go out <laughs> into our backyard and not be looking at my device, but just be sitting in the backyard and just listening to the sounds of the city and looking at our ridiculous amount of free wood that we've gathered because my husband and I both love wood-burning fires. We have a wood-burning fireplace and we have a fire pit outdoors and I love the smell. I love the smell of it. Mm. My absolute favorite thing in the world is to be like nighttime and you have a fire and you can also hear like running water. So like natural. So it's like a lake or a river or you're down by the ocean. I love to go up to Lake Superior and if I can be on the lake Mm -hmm. and have a fire and you hear those waves, like it is all my favorite things. The crack of wood and that fire when those, that's just just can't replicate that crack. I, I don't know how else to explain it, but you know yes, exactly what Yes, it's primal. I'm and it also connects you to history for like however long we've had fire. Like right. someone else has experienced this before me and after me. Long after I'm gone, this mm-hmm. experience will exist. I love having experiences that connect me to others. I feel like when you go see live music or things like that, I am individually experiencing this, but we're all experiencing it together. So that's bringing me a lot of joy. The last year, I've just been rereading some of my favorite things or just stuff that's easy for me to read because I've just needed that with how burnt out I've been feeling about with work and the pandemic. So there's a series that's like light romance, but also mystery called The Parasol Protectorate, written by Gail Carriger. And it takes place in late 1800s England, except it's also kind of steampunky and vampires and werewolves exist. It's like all these things that's okay, but Ashley, haven't vampire, aren't they over? And I'm like, yeah, but it just, it transports me to this little world and I get to escape for a little bit. And then, of course, I intersperse that with professional reading, and I read a bunch of kids' books. I actually just, we were, when was it? It was some weekend, and we were just stopping by the grocery store, and Baby Cakes is this Black-owned mobile bookstore. I had heard about it, but I had never seen them. I hadn't been to an event with them. And so when we pulled in, we were actually pulling into our library to drop books off. And then I, like, in a high-pitched voice, said to my husband, I go, Baby Cakes! And I was like, park! the car. I got to go over there. I just (laughs) read this beautiful book called Eyes That Speak to the Stars by Joanna Ho. And it's a picture book for kids. And it's a companion to her other bestselling book, Eyes That Kiss in the Corners. I think books are, or reading or information is a great way to both connect and escape. So that's what I that's what I do it for. But I would also say I watch a ridiculous amount of TV for perhaps any human, but maybe even for the stereotype of a librarian. But it's that film and TV background. What did I recently watch? It's just kind of like fluff 
kind of things. The two more like serious series that I watched were both on Apple TV and one is Defending Jacob. So it's like a murder mystery thriller type thing that was adapted from a book. And the other one was We Crashed, which my brother was actually an editor on it. So that was based on a podcast and it's about the rise and fall of We Work. Both of those, they're really compelling. I didn't know the total story about WeWork, but I knew that it's like, yeah, crashed and burned. But even though you know what's going to happen, like to still be interested in it and to still be drawn in, to me, that is really good media or art. And I think I'm not always consuming art when I'm consuming media, but I'm usually enjoying myself and I always have the captions turned on because I've been watching media with captions for 20 years. I love captions. They're the they're, they're so great. Best, honestly. Yeah, they're accessible. Yes. And I love the ones that are audio described yes. as well, where you get the description of things that happen in the scenes. And the thing that I always think about is there is a human somewhere who thought about the scene and added their own creativity and their own sort of personality to the way that they described the humming or yes. the buzzing or whatever it was that was being described. Yeah, I really enjoy it. My dad started losing his hearing when I was in high school. He's He was 47 when I was born, so I have a much older dad. So having that for a while has been so great. And I also like to say, I like to read my TV. Yeah, it is interesting because now <laughs> there are so many programs that can automate it. And But to have those full audio descriptions, like you really do mm-hmm. need a human being. You can't just have an interpretation by AI. And maybe it'll get to some point, but I do like the idea that there yeah. is a human being And I also get really upset when it's not exact about what someone says. One of my favorite movies is Clue. And Mm -hmm. the DVD versus what's streaming on Prime, they have different closed captioning tracks. And they're changing stuff. And they're actually changing the jokes. And I'm like, no, it's not as funny. You need to have it. (laughs) What they said. It's a weird (laughs) thing I get into. (laughs) I agree. Oh, my gosh. Well, thank you for sharing those books. We'll have them in the show notes. I've had such a wonderful time talking to you and learning about your past and how important a librarian is in our day and age as an educator and as someone who's really teaching our kids about the online world as well. It's not just about books. So thank you so much for spending your time with me today. I'm so grateful. Well, thank you so much for having me. And if anyone else wants to get involved in your library, school or public, just remember to contact your local representatives because sadly, they're always being underfunded. So make sure that you have access to information because it's paid with your tax dollars and that's what you deserve. Yes. Thank you. I appreciate that plug. That's awesome. My wife and I were just talking about what we would do if we won a lottery She came up with the idea of making user-focused libraries that had factual information and books of many different kinds, but in rural parts of the United States. Libraries that rural America desperately needs real data, real information. Then I'm like, okay, let's do it. $2, Powerball. Let's do it. That sounds great. Do that. Get the resources and get someone from the community who can run it because, you know, we can always have books, but they're also important to have that person who who helps connect people. I'll join her. Um, If I I win the lot, I'll also start something and we'll join up. (laughs) Yeah, that sounds great. Thank you so much. I hope you'll join us in the next episode of One of Eight Billion when we hear from the multi-talented Kamlika Chandla, 
an artist, writer, educator, and business owner based in Minneapolis. From very early on, I was always very fascinated by what is beyond us and very interested in science. In fact, I was one of the first Indian ambassadors to be sent to NASA. And things like the supernova or just metaphysics or the model of the universe. These are the books I was reading at 13 and 14. To your question about being one in eight billion, I feel that there is that sense of connectedness. It just doesn't stop to baffle me even today that we, we are unique. We may be different, but yet there is none like us. We have our own genotype where there's just one of us. And, and then at the same time, I think it grounds you because it helps you understand that the human essence is really the same across the 8 billion that we don't even see. This has been One of 8 Billion, a podcast about all of us, online at oneof8b.com. Join us again next time as we listen to One of 8 Billion Other Stories. One of 8 Billion is supported by 107, a technology studio whose mission is to make things that matter. Find out more at 107.com. I'm Ivan Stegic. Thank you for listening.